Gentlemen, bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Company. It's not talk of dawn and the decade ahead that allows you to get through the worst. It's I do and you don't and nobody said that and who brought the subject up first. It's a little bit. It's not so hard to be married. It's much the simplest of crimes. It's not so hard to be married. I've done it three or four times. It's people that you hate together. Hate together. Date together. That make marriage a joy. It's things like using force together. Shouting till you're horse together. Getting a divorce together. That make perfect relationships. Ah. But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. We have a lot to cover today. This episode is probably going to be one of our long guest episodes. I'm just going to plant that flag in the ground. Well, that's a phrase I have in my notes. You're going to hear it twice. (laughs) If not three times, maybe I'll find another reason to use that phrase. But look, we have a lot to cover, but I want to stay in this opening segment for as long as we can. I want to relish the opening segment. So I want to just tell you, first off, right off the bat, that I am, of course, I've been in contact with Benny and Patty. We have been Zooming. I've mentioned that before. But Benny and Patty made my week. We have started, they have started, I should say, and I'm very eager to keep this going. They have started a chain a postcard chain. We are encouraging people to use the U.S. postal system, considering it is under attack by this current administration. So we are sending each other now postcards. Uh, But again, I have to give them the credit. They really started this. They got the ball rolling. And I have a pair of beautiful postcards that I'm going to treasure for the rest of my goddamn life. I'm going to tell you that right now. These were, uh, this came to me at a time when I was feeling uh, very low. I had a panic attack this week. I talk about that on the latest episode of Radio Boy, which is dropping this week as well. I go into it, and I was feeling pretty messed up and mixed up and turned around, but these postcards really did center me in a very special way. So thank you, Patty. Thank you, Benny. You are going to be getting postcards from me very soon. Huh? Huh? You can count on that. The musical man always keeps his promises, as does John Pernasek, the man behind the mask. I have one more thing I want to say before moving out of this opening segment. I just want to say that the class of cream pie cuties grows ever bigger each and every week. It seems that we have a new suggestion that I cannot deny, that I cannot turn down, and we have another suggestion from listener Jenna, and that cream pie cutie suggestion is Nick Jonas, who does have more than a few Broadway credits. I don't mean to hurry you in, Nick, but get on in here, Nick Jonas. You're a part of the cream pie cutie club now. Tom Holland is the president. Ooh, one of these days, one of these days, those cream pie cuties are going to run a train on me. (laughs) Choo-choo! So, okay, if I could just stop being a little pervert for 10 seconds, I can smoothly lead us out of the opening segment and into the show facts regarding company. Show me the show facts! 
Company is a 1971, the 1971, I should say, winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on April 26, 1970 at the Alvin Theater and ran for 705 performances. The book is by George Firth. The music and lyrics are by Stephen Sondheim. The director, Hal Prince. Harold Prince. Hello, Hal. Musical director, Harold Hastings. Choreographer, musical staging by. That's the credit we get. Musical staging by, not choreography. Musical staging by Michael Bennett. Hello, Michael. Scenic design, Boris Aronson. Lighting design, Robert Ornbo. Sound design, Jack Mann. And costume design, D.D. Ryan. And the original Broadway cast included Barbara Berry, Charles Braswell, Susan Browning, George Coe, Kathy Corkill, John Cunningham, Steve Elmore, Carol Gelfand, Beth Howland, Dean Jones, Charles Kimbrough, Merle Louise, Donna McKechnie, Pamela Myers, Broadway debut, it should be said, Terry Ralston, Broadway debut, it should be said. Marilyn Saunders, Elaine Stritch, hello Elaine, and Donna D. Vaughn. Now in terms of Tony nods, here are the awards that company took home at the end of the night. It won Best Musical, of course, Best Book of a Musical, Best Original Score, Best Scenic Design, Boris Aronson, Best Direction of a Musical, Harold Prince, and Best Lyrics, Stephen Sondheim. In addition to these categories, it was also nominated for Best Actor in a Musical, Larry Kurt, Best Actress in a Musical, Elaine Stritch. Best Actress in a Musical, Susan Browning, doubling up there. Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Charles Kimbrough. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Barbara Berry. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Pamela Myers. So again, we're doubling up there. Best Lighting Design, Robert Ornbow. And Best Choreography, Michael Bennett. So, 14 nominations in total, 6 awards at the end of the day. Not bad, company. Now, regarding the casting of Bobby, who is the lead character of our subject this week, Anthony Perkins of Psycho fame was initially cast in this role, but he dropped out so he could direct a play. This would have likely been Bruce J. Friedman's Steam Bath, which opened off-Broadway in June 1970. Perkins was replaced by Dean Jones, who may be best known for his string of middling live-action Disney comedies, That Darn Cat, The Love Bug, The Million Dollar Duck, The Ugly Dachshund, The Shaggy DA, The Horse in the Gray Flannel Suit, Monkeys, Go Home, etc., etc., etc. Jones soon found himself depressed by company as its focus on marriage only reminded him of his ongoing divorce with May Inez Enswile. En Enswile. Oh boy. May? I apologize. He was allowed, Jones was allowed, to drop out of the show, but only after agreeing to record the cast album and put in a month of performances. Jones's understudy, Larry Kurt, took over the part of Bobby and was met with immediate success. Critics gave him positive notices, the Tony Awards Committee declared he would be eligible for a nomination despite the fact that Jones technically originated the role, and when the show transferred to London, Larry Kurt went with it. The original London cast album of Company actually features all of the performances from the Broadway album minus Dean Jones. His vocals were lifted out of the mix and replaced with those of Larry Kurt, so the London album is actually more like a new edition of the Broadway release. Considering half of the Broadway cast was replaced before that hop across the pond, I can only imagine the disappointment of the newly selected actors. They didn't get to hear themselves on a record. That stinks. Talk about a bitter pill, right? From what I can tell, you can no longer get the London album in any form, though Larry Kurt's rendition of Being Alive was tacked onto a re-release of the Broadway album as a bonus track. Confused yet? 
Reissue the London album, if you please. I would like to hear Kurt's performance in full. Thank you in advance. Regarding a film adaptation of Company, I have a few little nuggets here. From Wikipedia, quote, In 2010, there was speculation that Neil LeBute would direct a film version of Company. Quote, The idea of a Neil LeBute adaptation of Company makes my blood run cold. My blood turns into blue... Bi- <laughs> my blood turns into blueberry slushy material. That's what happens to me when I think about that. Neil LeBute, I'm disgusted. <laughs> that is not a universe in which I would like to live. No, thank you. Sondheim also approached William Goldman of The Princess Bride and Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid, among other screenwriting credits, about writing a screenplay, but Goldman couldn't get over how the show's lead character, Bobby, wasn't explicitly gay. Goldman was of the opinion that Bobby was gay, but the show was not willing to address this fact. <laughs> what he had decided was a fact in his mind. The director of this hypothetical film adaptation that would have been written by William Goldman, uh, that would be Herbert Ross of The Goodbye Girl and Steel Magnolias. He was set to direct this. He actually convinced Sondheim to shelf the project, to shuttle the project, and I think that everybody is in agreement with me in saying that it's probably for the best. I don't believe that company needs to be turned into a film. We don't need that. It is a very, it's very much at home in the world of the theater. Let's just let it go. No movie, please. Thank you. Now, when it comes to the plot, I really want to bull rush through this because we have so much material to talk about in relation to this show, Company. So I'm just going to go through a real quick character breakdown. Bobby, as I said, is our lead character. He is surprised by his friends on his 35th birthday, and they present him with a beautiful birthday cake, and they say, blow out the candles, Bobby, and for whatever reason, Bobby can't. He tries to blow out the candles, God love him, but I guess that speaks to his emotional impotency. Yes, that's right. Oh, that's right. Bobby is a cool cat. He's a handsome guy. He's dating all these ladies. He's having sex with all these ladies. Oh, man, what a life this guy leads. But something is stopped up inside of him. He doesn't have the emotional capacity to truly love. And that is the journey on which Bobby Bobby takes a journey of self-discovery. And I don't mean to uh, laugh at this. It's just funny to me uh, saying this out loud off the cuff. It really is just the story of a guy trying to uh, have emotions, to not be afraid of his emotions, to not be afraid of the idea of deep love, deep connection. Let's talk about all of the friends in that friend group, okay? So we have Sarah and Harry uh, when Bobby hangs out with them. So really the company uh, structure is as such. Bobby just hangs out with all of his friends in various contexts, in various settings, and he sort of cobbles together a new life a new, not a new life, a new worldview, I should say, a new perspective based on all of the experiences he has with his married friends. All of the people in his life who he considers to be a friend happen to be married to each other. So he is the one single person in this big group of married couples. So Sarah and Harry, what the fuck's their deal? Am I right? Well, they're on a diet and on the wagon, respectively. So Sarah is obsessed with all of these rich, delicious foods that she can't eat, and Harry is obsessed with alcohol, even though he 
would say that that is not true, that he's on the wagon, that he's not cheating, but they're both cheating. Oh no, Sarah's eating those delicious foods. Harry's drinking and Bobby knows their secrets. He sees, he sees the truth, but Sarah and Harry are both saying to him, shh, don't tell my spouse that I'm, I'm cheating on my diet. Shh, don't tell my spouse that I actually am an alcoholic. Don't give them the power, Bobby. Don't give them the power to say that they were right. Oh my God, the idea of being wrong. It's killing me. Let's move on. We have Susan and Peter. Uh, this is a couple that actually announces to Bobby that they are getting a divorce. Yeah, I believe they say that he is the first person they've ever told about their impending divorce. But in the end, they choose to stay together. They stay living together, I should say. They do get the divorce, but they're living together. And Peter turns out to be uh, bisexual, if not outright gay. He comes on to Bobby in a scene in which they are hanging out on his terrace, and Bobby just sort of very gently uh, turns him down. He isn't explicit in that turn down, but he just sort of says to Peter, okay, Peter, well, you know, good luck with this bisexuality that you seem to be uh, <laughs> doing a bit of a tango dance with. I know you, I know you want to sleep with me and sort of try that out. Uh, I have. He does admit that he himself, Bobby, has been with men in the past, but for whatever reason, maybe he's not attracted to Peter. Maybe he's no longer interested in being with men. Bobby just sort of lets that moment go. He lets it fly away like a plastic bag on the wind. Let's go on to the next couple. Who's this? Okay, so it's Jenny and David. And in their scene, they smoke pot with Bobby. They smoke the red hot reefer, the wicked weed. They do, they do. They mow that grass, baby. And they all get stoned. And what you learn throughout this scene is that uh, Jenny is very eager to please, presumably, or at least that's what David's perspective is. My perspective on David is that David is an asshole who makes fun of his wife to her face and even more so behind her back. He talks about how she's a square and how she is this, you know, very uh, uh, self, this, this person who needs to please everyone in the room. And it's very obvious that he resents her for that. And there's a bitterness inside him. I don't like David. David is a real bad egg. Stop being mean to Jenny. Get a divorce if you're that unhappy, you Fuck. Moving on, we have Amy and Paul who are actually getting married in this show. So the show begins with them. Uh, well, we're playing with time. We're sort of jumping around in the timeline of these people's lives. But at one point, we do see them on the day they are going to get married. And Amy is highly neurotic. It's very obvious that Amy is dealing with depression, anxiety, all these different uh, varying levels of neuroses. And she has an emotional breakdown. And she says to Paul on the day of their wedding that she uh, does not love him enough. I believe is, are the words that she uses. And Paul walks out. He's very clearly a broken man. His heart has been broken. And in that moment, Bobby, Bobby says to April, Amy, I should say, he says to Amy, why don't we just get married? Okay, let's just get married and everyone will leave us alone. And that's when, that is when Amy says to Bobby, oh my God, you are showing me now how crazy I have been. I do want to marry Paul. And I just have a bit of advice for you, Bobby. What you just did was cuckoo banana cocoa puffs fucking straight up banana bread. And here's the thing, you you should want to marry somebody, not somebody. That's one of the great George Firth lines in the book. I really like that line. And she, she is saying to Bobby, like, don't get married out of panic. And I think in that moment she realizes, oh, I shouldn't not get married because I'm panicking. My panic, my anxiety, my panic attack isn't really connected to this event. It has to do more with me than what is happening around me, what I am choosing 
choosing to do with my life. I need to work on myself more, maybe. You know, this is all, a lot of this is me sort of extrapolating. I'm interpreting what's sort of going on in, a, in Amy's head. But there you go. So that's Amy and Paul. And then finally, our last couple is Joanne and Larry. Larry is Joanne's third husband. Joanne is very salty. She is a big old booze hound. And she is very uh, verbally abusive, I think it's safe to say, in regards to Larry. She really puts him through the ringer. And they are hanging out with Bobby in some sort of 1970s nightclub. And it is in this nightclub that Joanne comes on to Bobby, who himself is very, very drunk on this particular evening. And she says to Bobby in another great George Firth exchange, she says to him, look, I will take care of you. We can meet at my at our home when my husband is away. I can have we can have sex. I'll take care of you. You'll be comfortable. And the big the big part of that is I will take care of you, of course. And Bobby says in response, it's very like off the cuff. It comes out of him before he can even uh, prevent it from leaving his mouth. He says, but who will I take care of? And that sort of clears up Joanne's, <laughs> her cynicism and her anger sort of is dispelled like a fog. It's like she sees for the first time what she is doing, what she was asking of Bobby, what she has become essentially. And she is seeing Bobby in a new light too and she sort of encourages him to keep thinking along those lines okay what yeah just listen to what you said is what she says to him listen to what you said that's very important it came spilling out of you without a moment's hesitation keep following that track and it is because of this experience that Bobby is ultimately able to uh, come to terms with himself, come to terms with why he has maybe not been ready to deeply commit to someone. And at the end of the show, he decides that, yes, I am going to try harder. I'm going to put myself out there more, and I'm going to take bigger risks with myself emotionally and with other people. I'm going to try and uh, really commit myself to someone. Now, there are a few more couples that, uh, not couples, characters that I want to mention. April, Marta, and Kathy, these are the the three different women that Bobby is casually dating throughout this timeline. Now, April is a flight attendant. She's a little bit ditzy. I don't. I think a lot of productions play her as a complete doofus, someone who is not self-aware at all, and I think that's a mistake. I think I will be going into that later, maybe a little bit. If I don't, just say, just assume that... <laughs> This is where I meant to stop that discussion. I just don't think that April should be played like a complete moron. She should have agency. She should have... <laughs> she's emotionally intelligent. If you don't want her to be like an intellectual, fine. But I don't think she should be like a fucking balloon just <laughs> raising up into the upper atmosphere. Okay, ground her a little bit is what I'm saying. Marta is a younger woman. So I believe, yes, Bobby is 35. So I think she's meant to be like around 25, I guess. She's young. We keep talking about how she's young throughout the show. And she's a big fan of New York City. Oh, she loves the, the urban life of New York City, the hustle and the bustle of, of a metropolitan lifestyle. And finally, Kathy is Bobby's on-again, off-again girlfriend, who in a book scene reveals to Bobby that she has become engaged to someone else and that she is planning to move out of New York City and go to Cape Cod. So Marta and Kathy are sort of uh, two sides of the same coin. They're connected by New York City, but Marta is young. She really wants to stay in New York, and Kathy is sick of New York. She wants a husband, she wants a family, she wants a quiet life, and so she is leaving Bobby behind. If you ask me, Kathy
Kathy is the character that Bobby definitely should be with. I think that she would turn him into more of a well-rounded human being than any of the other characters we encounter. But that's just me. I think he should go after her in that great George Firth book scene. That's just my opinion. What did I look into in regards to sources? Research sources. Well, for the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to five cast albums in one goddamn day. Oh, goodness gracious. This quarantine really is doing a number on me. So I listened to the 1970 original Broadway cast album, the 1995 Broadway revival cast album, the 1995 London revival cast album. Now, this is often cited online as the 1996 London revival cast, but uh, excuse me, nuh-uh, nuh-uh, nuh 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 That revival began in December of 1995. That's how we cite it, okay? That's how we cite it moving forward. So 1995 London revival cast album. That was the third of five that I listened to in one day. The other two were 2006, the 2006 Broadway revival cast album, and the 2018 London revival cast album. And then finally, I watched the full performance. There's a full performance online, in full, on YouTube. It's the 1996 London Revival cast, and this was produced and presented through the Don Mar Warehouse. Okay, so the Don Mar Warehouse production. Again, it's available on YouTube. I would recommend it. Here are the sources that were not available to me. I would have uh, at least tried to dip into these, but to be honest, after listening to five cast albums and watching a two-hour and 15-minute performance, I was I love company, but I was more than ready to be done when it came to my research. But here are the sources that are not widely available digitally online. Uh, not legitimately at least. I didn't go into the dark web and try to find a bootleg. So the 1970 documentary, Original Cast Album Company, that's the name of the documentary, Original Cast Album Company, that is going for $230 on Amazon, the DVD is, I should say. I saw this way back in college, so it's definitely, it's floating around in my head. It's a little fuzzy, a little gauzy, but it's there. It's there, okay? The 2006 Broadway Revival Cast DVD, which is now going for $76 on Amazon, or if you want the multi-format DVD Blu-ray release, you can pay $154 for that on Amazon. I used to own the DVD, but I threw it away. I didn't, so I sat down with Chris, we started watching it, and then I threw it away because I, I thought that I was sick of it. I felt that I essentially memorized it. I watched it so many times back in college, and so I threw it away, and that is just crazy to me now. I'm sure many of you are thinking, what? You are absolutely out of your mind. What are you, a loaf of fucking banana bread filled with Cocoa Puffs? I am, apparently. I was crazy to do so, and I apologize. And then finally, we have the 2011 New York Philharmonic Concert Cast. That DVD is going for $100 on Amazon. So compared to some of these other price tags, that's kind of a deal, actually. I only watched a bit of the first act. At some point, I don't even know when I would have done that. I was not a fan of this at all. I was not a fan of Neil Patrick Harris, especially. And I never... Well, here's the thing. I never understood Anika Noni Rose of Dreamgirls and The Princess and The the Frog plays Kathy in that production. I never made that connection until this week. And with that properly in mind, I think I would give it another go. I watched the opening number on YouTube, though, and they staged that thing like a fucking theme park ride. Everybody's getting pushed around in those goddamn love seats, and Neil Patrick Harris is just so obnoxious. Uh, no thanks. There's that moment where uh, Peter, I believe I said, asks Bobby if he's ever been with a man, and oh, how the audience roars in recognition of the fact that Neil Patrick Harris 
Harris is gay. And Neil Patrick Harris, like, does a smirk. He actually does, I think, some level of a take to the audience. And I really think that's fucking, that's just gross. That's obnoxious. Boo. to the company OBC album, but that opening number still leaves me dizzy. It begins as a breeze and transforms into a cyclone over the course of six minutes. And once you give yourself over to it, the experience is absolutely rapturous. That original cast is not fucking around either. They are ripping it open, honey. They launch into an extended note at the four minute mark. We love you. That love is extended for 20 seconds. They hold and sustain that for 20 seconds. None of the subsequent cast recordings I listened to even attempted to recreate that moment, and it's easy to see why. It seems difficult. I also found myself relishing the orchestrations this time around. When it comes to musical theater, my ear actually tends to focus on lyrics over score, which I realize is an opposite to how I process mainstream music. In any case, I got a kick out of focusing on individual elements of the instrumentation, picking up on what individual instruments were doing, I should say. There is a steady beat running throughout this track that drives home the persistence of Bobby's buddies, like they're always knocking at his door. Simple, but delightful. Side note, I would love to see a throwback revival of Company that embraces a soft 60s, soft 70s vibe when it comes to the costuming. Now I say soft because I'm not interested in a blunt assemblage, a fashion show uh, made up of 
trends and signifiers. I don't need Marta to be dressed like a go-go girl, for example. I want gentle pastels. I want April in a Pan Am uniform. Did they do that for the New York Philharmonic concert? Maybe that's, maybe I'm stealing that idea from that. But give me company by way of promises, promises, if you please. I keep saying that, if you please. Thank you, please. Harry, you ever sorry you got married? You're always sorry, you're always grateful, you're always wondering what might have been, then she walks in, and still you're sorry, and still you're grateful, and still you wonder, and still you out and she goes out everything's different nothing's changed only maybe slightly rearranged you're sorry grateful regretful happy why look for answers when none occur? You always are what you always were, which has nothing to do with all to do with her. There is no way Sorry Grateful did not blow the minds of theatergoers in 1970. Divorce as a concept was still shocking in and of itself. How could you have men in a musical comedy speaking this frankly about their feelings? Consider these lyrics. Quote, You hold her thinking, I'm not alone. You're still alone. Audiences of today would nod in somber recognition, right? They would think, yes, tis true, we are the custodians of our own happiness. We cannot expect anyone, and not even our loving partner, to complete us. Can't love your lover if you can't love yourself. But I think about audiences stepping into the 1970s, and I imagine those, <laughs> not inner monologues, I imagine the conversations walking out of those theaters. You're still alone? What the hell did he mean by that? What was he talking about, David? Our personal and professional lives are entirely predicated on the institution of marriage. Everyone knows it's the key to living a successful life as adults. This show is cracking open a book of vocabulary I do not care to read. Get the car, David. We're staying at my mother's house for the next five months. My big directorial note regarding Sorry Grateful is that it should be split up amongst the men and women of your cast. It's traditionally a number four men. I'm tired of how it's always a number four guys. The sentiments they express are not uniquely male, Mr. Sondheim. I want Sarah to specifically deliver the line, why look for answers where none occur? Because in her scene with Bobby, she's always kidding him, teasing him about his endless line of questioning, his boundless curiosity. Sarah would then go on to sing, you'll always be what you always were, at which time Harry, her husband, would pick up the song and complete the phrase by saying, which has nothing to do with, all to do with her. Wouldn't that be lovely to have these characters commenting on their better halves, having a conversation with themselves? If you would say that the little things you do together, which I realize we skipped over, that number already accomplished 
accomplishes that goal, if that would be your rebuttal to my argument, I would say, fine, considering that, let's just turn Sorry Grateful into a full-on duet between Harry and Sally and not worry about anyone else. But let's change it in some way so that a woman's voice can be included. You'll always be what you always were, which has nothing to do with all to do with her. Is that Sondheim's best lyric? I'm over the moon for it. I, I it's, it's definitely top-tier Sondheim lyricism. My musical theater tour troupe performed Sorry Grateful exactly once, and it did not go over well. I'm pretty sure I had the line, Harry, you ever sorry you got married? And when I delivered that line, it elicited laughter from the audience. Real laughter. The lesson is you probably shouldn't have college students sing Sorry Grateful. There's stretching yourself, and then there's pretending to be like mommy and daddy. You could drive a person crazy. You could drive a person mad. First you make a person hazy. So a person could be hot. Then you leave a person dangling, sadly, outside your door, which it only makes a person gladly want you even more. I can understand a person if it's not a person's bang. I can understand a person if a person was a bang. What fascinates me about You Could Drive a Person Crazy is its relationship with the word fag and how it's changed over the last 50 years. In its original form, the song included the following lyrics, quote, I could understand a person if it's not a person's bag. I could understand a person if a person was a fag, quote. Jump to 1993 when Dorothy Loudon performs as part of Sondheim, a celebration at Carnegie Hall. She serves a blockbuster mashup of crazy uh, you could drive a person crazy, I should say, and losing my mind from Follies. It's great. And right when she's about to deliver that slur, she actually swaps it out for drag. I could understand a person if it's not a person's bag. I could understand a person if a person was a drag. But worse than that, a person that and the audience roars in recognition of this change. Jump to the 1995 Broadway revival cast album, and you'll find the lyrics have finally been changed. Now it's, I could understand a person if he said to go away. I could understand a person if he happened to be gay. We've settled on a kinder, more enlightened version of this admittedly disposable joke. One would think we could call it a day and move on, but uh, no, 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 no. The 95 London revival brings the slur back to the table. This is not a minor issue for me. Yes, we did eventually settle on gay as the punchline, but why is being gay still some form of a weak sauce punchline? If I had my way, we would take a tip from Dorothy Loudon and go with bag and drag as our rhyme pairing. It keeps us in the period of the piece without making anyone feel like shit. Make the change, directors. Do the right thing. Stop making fun of gay people. Have I got a girl for you? Wait till you meet her. Have I got a girl for you? Boy, who boy? Boy, in your shoes, what I wouldn't give. I mean, 
the freedom to go out and live As for settling down and all that Marriage may be where it's been But it's not where it's at Oh, tell me all about it, will you, maybe? Wow What do you like? You like coming home to a kiss Somebody with a smile at the door What do you like? You like indescribable bliss Then what do you want to get married for? What do you like? You like an excursion to Rome, suddenly taking off to explore. What do you like? You like having meals cooked at home. And what do you want to get married for? What do you want to get married for? What do you want to get married for? What do you want to get company ushered in a new era for the concept musical by presenting an unabashedly non-linear plot, one driven by mood and theme over action or incident. And as I said during the plot summary, you know, we're jumping around in time, we're jumping to all these different locations, seemingly without any sort of A, B, C, D uh, logic behind any of it. That's the fun of company. We're sort of leaping around in time and space. Now, I'm certain we've discussed concept musicals and how they're defined, but like concept musicals, musicals themselves, the definition is slippery. Your mileage may vary when it comes to the one I just provided. Between you and me, that discussion is boring anyway. What is a concept musical? What isn't? Do me a favor, entertain me, will you? Do that first. We'll bring up the scholarly stuff later. I only bring it up because part of the fun of company is how it uses its concept musical status to blur the edges of its characters. In a song like Sorry Grateful, the men are allowed to exist as individuals sticking to one topic while expressing their unique perspectives. By comparison, the song you just heard, Have I Got a Girl for You, presents the men as a hive mind, buzzing in Bobby's ear about how marriage is little more than a trap. I love that. Are they meant to be a personification of the male gaze, more symbolic than human, or are these actually the men we've come to know? Are they choosing to ignore their sensitive sides in favor of being one of the guys? Locker room talk, baby. That second interpretation says, a great deal more about who men are willing to throw under the bus and when. I choose the second interpretation. More interesting, I say. Someone is waiting Cool as Sarah Easy and loving as Susan Jenny Someone is waiting, warm as Susan, frantic and touching as Amy, Joanne, would I know her even if I met her, have I missed her, did I let her go? Someone is Waiting does an excellent and efficient job of demonstrating how fractured Bobby's take on romance really is. He's swapping out the features and personality traits of his friends in a Frankensteinian attempt to craft the ideal woman. It's weird. Bobby's weird. He's immature. In the 90s, Bobby was given an additional solo to close out Act 1. I mean, this song wasn't written in the 90s. It sort of came in and out of the show during its development phase. But finally, in the 90s, it sort of became 
became the Act One finale, and that song is known as Marry Me a Little. I'm not a big fan of Marry Me a Little, truth be told. Marry me a little, love me just enough, cry but not too often, play but not too rough, keep a tender distance so we'll both be free. That's the way it ought to be. I get how it advances Bobby one step further in his journey. I realize Marry Me a Little is not hitting the exact same emotional beats as someone is waiting. It's necessary, but I sort of want to cut it anyway. It hits me as yet another round of dithering on Bobby's part, and I find myself squirming through it. Someone is waiting, yes. Marry Me a Little, eh, wake me when it's over. And I actually think that not getting married today is a great way to end Act One. Ah, but that's just me. That's just one musical man talking. A tiny tidbit of an observation before we move on. Isn't it funny to hear, isn't it fun, I should say, fun to hear Bobby sing Joanne? And no, Sondheim will go on to write Joanna for Sweeney Todd. It's a perfectly lovely, there's that word again, it's a lovely extension of a perfectly lovely musical thought. Another hundred people just got off of the train and came up through the ground pile. Another hundred people just got off of the bus and are looking around at another hundred people who got off of the plane and are looking at us who got off of the train and the plane and the bus maybe yesterday. It's a city of strangers. Some come to work, some to play. A city of strangers. Some come to stare, some to stay. And every day. Another hundred people just cut off of the train. Ah, speaking of another hundred people, here we are. Did I record myself singing another hundred people in college? Yes, I flat out asked our musical director to sit at his piano in his office while I recorded myself singing this song. Do I still have the recording? I 100% do not. That is the truth. I would, I would drop it in and embarrass myself if I could. Sondheim has consistently made it clear how his shows are not meant to be autobiographical, at least not strictly. Here he is speaking with Sam Mendes, yes, that's Sam Mendes, who directed the 1995 London revival. How autobiographical is company? Every show I've ever written, people always think I'm the central character, but in <laughs> fact, they ignore the fact that, they ignore the fact that all these characters are created by the playwrights, not by me. Obviously, there's something that attracts me that I can uh, um, relate to the story involved. But I didn't think of Bobby as me at all. I don't think Hal did either. If there's any of George in it, that would be more likely because yes. he did write it, you know. Although, he, uh, there's a, a model for every single person in company. And it's always very flattering to say to Stephen Sondheim's latest musical or Stephen Sondheim's company, but it isn't. It's George Firth and Stephen Sondheim's company. I mean, it's, they're his characters, and they're his characters. Uh, 
I, I'm a very good imitator, and um, I mimic uh, what a writer writes. Now, many people, including screenwriter William Goldman, who we mentioned earlier, saw Bobby's inability to settle down with a woman as a sign pointing toward homosexuality. Sondheim doesn't agree with this connection either, as made clear by this quote from a 2000 New York Times interview. Quote, We were talking about somebody unable to make an emotional connection. Period. It's about how difficult it is to live with somebody, and there are millions of men around who are Bobbies, who just will not make an emotional commitment to a woman. What is all this that it's got to be gay? There's the myth that one of the problems of homosexuality is that people can't commit. There are plenty of homosexuals who are committed emotionally to others, and there are plenty who are not. Quote, Side note, this 2000 New York Times interview cites Glitter and Be Gay from Candide as a song Sondheim wishes he had written connections. Just want to make sure we make those connections. I'm of two minds on the subject of Bobby's sexuality and how it does, does not connect to that of Sondheim, who came out when he was 40, in other words, the year company premiered on Broadway. Characterizing Bobby as gay does ring as an easy write-off, the sort of condescending diagnosis you hear a lot of of people, straight, gay, or otherwise, throw around. Oh, he's gay, I figured it out, we can call it a day. It speaks to a startling lack of intellectual curiosity, not to mention a total disregard of empathy and the sexual spectrum. Bisexuality, anyone? Huh? But those reactions don't seem totally reductive when you consider moments from George Firth's book and Sondheim's score. You could drive a person crazy, sees the woman in Bobby's life questioning his sexuality. A scene between Bobby and Peter makes it clear that Bobby has slept with at least one man and Peter is probably bisexual. There's also a queer subtext running throughout The Little Things You Do Together in which a reference is made to couples swapping clothes. A small detail, but I just wanted to make sure we included that here. So sexuality in company is as fluid as it is in real life, so I don't think Sondheim should be surprised when people pose these questions. Annoyed? Sure, it can be annoying to answer those questions all the time, but should he be surprised? No. This is all to say that Another Hundred People strikes me as a gay anthem. That's how it does hit me. There's a nervous, excitable energy here, one I would associate with uh, being single and cruising. Big cities like New York tease the possibility of endless opportunities for sex. And while that can feel amazing, it can also wear you out pretty damn quick. And now with all these crazy hookup apps, it's like, what does it even mean to connect anymore? More. Am I right? Grinder, Tinder, all of these errs, and we can't even find a love err. I'll show myself out. You know what? Before I show myself out and we move on to the next song, just gonna put my director's cap on, my conical director's cap on, real quick. I wanna talk about that scene between Bobby and Peter, where Peter reveals himself to more than likely be bisexual, if not gay. That scene in the Raul Esparza Broadway revival is really played up for laughs. It's played up as just this big joke that Peter, oh my goodness, Peter's coming on to Bobby, our hero, but like Bobby being with a man? That's not what this show is about. It's, 
it's very, it is just steeped in easy laughter. Uh, and I want to just compare that to the Donmer Warehouse production, which I watched on YouTube. They do not go for those laughs at all. They make it very obvious that this is a very tender, very important moment for Peter. He is really taking a risk. He's putting himself out there by revealing to Bobby there is a fear there that he will maybe be violently rejected. And that's something that is very relatable to gay men, bisexual men, this idea that it's it's very dangerous. It's very risky to reveal that to someone, even if it's someone who's your one of your closest friends. You never know how they're going to react. And it's very quiet and very tender. I'll use that word again. It, it's just a very sensitive approach to the material. And I think that's the way to go. Again, don't use gay people as the subject of uh, just, they're not the punchline. The existence of gay people, the existence of homosexuality is not a punchline, okay? So let's just, okay, now we can move on. That's the magic phrase that cues up the next sound clip. So let's move on, baby. Listen, everybody, look, I don't know what you're waiting for. A wedding, what's a wedding? It's a prehistoric ritual where everybody promises fidelity forever, which is maybe the most horrifying word I've ever heard of, which is followed by a honeymoon where suddenly he realized he's saddled with a nut and want to kill me, which he should. Thanks a bunch, but I'm not getting married. Go have lunch, because I'm not getting married. You've been grand, but I'm not getting married. Don't just stand there, I'm not getting married. And don't tell Paul, but I'm not getting married today. Go, can't you go? Why is nobody listening? Goodbye, go and cry at another person's wake. If you're quick for a kick, you could pick but please, on my knees, there's a human life at stake. Listen, everybody, I'm afraid you didn't hear it. Do you want to see a crazy lady fall apart in front of you? It isn't only Paul who'll be ruining his life. You know, we'll both of us be losing our identities. I telephoned my analyst about it, and he said to see him Monday, book on Monday, I'll be floating in the Hudson with the other garbage. I'm not well, so I'm not getting married. You've been swell, but I'm not getting married. Clear the hall, because I'm not getting married. Thank you all, but I'm not getting married. And don't tell Paul, but I'm not getting married today. If you're not a fan of getting married today, then I'm going to have to refer you to another doctor because this relationship is not going to work out. Dr. Pernasek will not be seeing you any further. Getting married today is a Gatling gun of a number. It's right up there with Adelaide's Lament as one of the canon's best comedic offerings. But remember what I've said in the past, you can't expect a song like this, the song's status as a classic, to generate automatic laughter from your audience. You'll need to examine every nut and bolt of getting married today if you're going to pilot that sucker efficiently. Some songs speak for themselves. It's true. Some songs need you to get the hell out of their way. And then there are songs that give you a once over and say, all right, kid, let's see what you got. It's reasonable to be worried about Amy's mental health, right? We all enjoy laughing in general recognition of her neuroses. But when she isn't singing about Paul killing her, she's singing about killing herself. Red flags all around. My hope for Amy is that she can at least find a new analyst. I think that's I think that is crucial. I'd also suggest medication, but God only knows what women were given in the 60s to manage anxiety. If I could, I would hug April and tell her that, yes, she does deserve to be loved. No, she is not fated to ruin her marriage, and that one day she won't feel as if her lungs are being squeezed to the point of rupturing. I believe in you, April. Now, from a director's standpoint, I've got that conical cap on again. I would insist Jenny be presented with an 
a crisp ray of heavenly light. That cliche ray of heaven light. I want that. I want that on Jenny whenever she pops up throughout this song. It's only appropriate, right? And we can definitely make a game out of where and how Jenny appears on stage for those solos. First solo, a soft increase on Jenny center stage left, preferably on a level. Second solo, a soft increase on Jenny center stage right, let's say. And when we expect her to show up for the third solo, she doesn't. She presumably misses her cue. There's silence. The orchestra goes quiet. April looks around, visibly agitated, and then suddenly... Bam! Jenny's right behind April in a harsh column of light. April screams. Isn't it funny when she screams in the Raul Esparza revival? Oh, we gotta at least steal that idea. So April screams, everybody laughs. It would be a real hoot. Oh, hoot hoot! Thinking on it, my production of Company would be heavily reliant on lighting. Give me a cyclorama I can splash colors across. A couple of levels to work with, and I would be a happy Boy Scout camper. Ooh, a thundercloud effect spreading across the giant psychorama during this number when they talk about rain? I, I'm, I'm borderline speechless thinking about it. <laughs> Ooh, thundercloud, that would be great. I'm getting goosebumps over here. Feel them. Feel my goosebumps. deep thought out of the way, first and foremost, side by side by side slash what would we do without you is one of the best act two openers you could ever hope to find. When the cast sings who is a flirt but never a threat, reminds us of our birthdays, which we always forget. I like to think they're talking about their own birthdays and not those of their spouses. Joanne, it's your birthday today. It is? Ha <laughs> Bobby, what would I do without you, kiddo? Who'd finish yesterday's stew tickles me as a lyric because it reads as a placeholder lyric that made its way into the final product somehow. Ah, oh, Bobby, do me a favor, will ya? Finish this fucking stew my wife made. None of the cast recordings beyond the OBC incorporate tap into What Would We Do Without You, and I find that to be a damn shame. The 95 London revival sees Bobby dancing up a storm, but he never taps, and we need to bring tap back into the mix, I 
say, I want Bobby tapping in a spotlight he cannot escape while his friends stand in a line upstage of him, their heads at an angle, so they're staring at the stage. Ooh, creepy. We would light them from above in such a way that their faces would be shrouded in darkness as they sang. Eerie, fun, eerie and fun. Robert, Bobby, Robert, Angel, Bobby, honey, you know no one wants you to be happy more than I do. No one, but isn't she a little bit, will you know, you know, face it. No one wants you to be happy more than I do. delivers she's tall enough to be your mother goliath like elaine stretch it's a crackerjack of a joke and it will get a laugh if you have even a shred of comic timing but it will never land with the deadpan ferocity of an elaine stretch i miss her don't you fucking miss elaine stretch of course you do if i could interview anyone who was no longer on this coil it would be elaine stretch followed by eartha kit no doubt about it i mean picture that happy hour on cloud nine for a second will you holy hell the women in this song are projecting, right, poor baby? They claim to be concerned about the lack of affection in Bobby's life, but they are talking about themselves. Poor Bobby, he's all alone. He has no one to care about him. Hmm, imagine how terrible and depressing that would be to be in his situation, isolated all the time, staring into space, lost. I'm going to kill you, David. Make no mistake, homicide is always hovering right at the edge of this piece. Company needs to be set firmly in 1970 because I'm not convinced people have conversations like this anymore. Not since, not with their spouses, yes, those conversations happen. But uh, since the internet made us more open and more withholding when it comes to how we really feel about others, I don't think we would be taking that private conversation to the subjects of the conversation. You wouldn't nitpick someone's partner to their face, would you? That's the point I'm trying to make here. That's the question I posit. That doesn't happen. Of course, like Sorry Grateful, Poor Baby could be yet another psychosexual fever dream that takes place in Bobby's skull. Uh, you know, questions. So many questions I put out there. Oh, this is sensational. Oh, I think he really likes it. Oh, God. Oh, dear. Oh. oh. I like that. I know. Oh, she has such a lovely, smooth body. I love you. I love you. I... 
ายTikTok performed as part of the 2011 New York Philharmonic production. I was flabbergasted. A dream ballet in the middle of company? It seemed and still seems old-fashioned, but I'll go to bat for it if we can recreate the hollow, static effect of the dialogue you heard a second ago. I love that shit. Pipe that into the theater as a set of pre-recorded sound cues and make it haunting, especially that chorus of, I love you, Joanne. I love you, Larry. I love you, Paul. I love you, Susan. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Is there a more heartbreaking moment in company than Bobby looking back on all of the affection he's had to observe, witness from afar over the years? He's constantly within earshot of the phrase, I love you, and has no idea what it means. <laughs> oh, that's juicy, baby. to propose a toast. Here's to the ladies who lunch. Everybody laugh. Lounging in their caftans and planning a brunch. On their own behalf Off to the gym Then to a fitting Claiming their fat And looking grim Cause they've been sitting Choosing a hat Does anyone still wear a hat? I'll drink to that. Joanne's hatred of humanity and herself is one of the most relatable and tragic characterizations found within this week's subject. Everyone has or has had a Joanne in their life, someone who subsists on rage and is constantly testing the strength of their relationships. They may be good for a poisonous laugh or two, but make no mistake, eventually you will be the one in their crosshairs and it ain't gonna be pretty. Will Joanne and Larry stay together? I certainly hope not. The idea of being routinely ridiculed and humiliated by a partner makes me want to curl up and die, and Joanne would probably be better off on her own. She could also wind up like Stockard Channing in the First Wives Club. Look, I can't control the will of the fates. I like the idea that we all have a Joanne in our life, and we also learn from those Joannes. They're very helpful, actually. They're very useful. At the very least, you can look at the Joannes in your life and say, well, I don't want to be like that, so let's take steps to ensure that doesn't happen, shall we? Blow out the candles, Robert, and make a wish. Want something. Want something. Somebody hold me too close 
Somebody hurt me too deep Somebody sit in my chair And ruin my sleep And make me aware Of being alive Being alive Somebody need me too much Somebody know me too well Somebody pull me up short And put me through hell And give me support For being alive Make me alive Make me alive Make me confused Lock me with praise Let me be used Ferry my days But alone to care Somebody make me come through I'll always be there as frightened as you to help us survive Being alive Being alive Being alive I think I've already made this clear, but I'll say it again. George Firth's book for company is, it's very strong. It's solid as a rock. And it doesn't get much better than when Amy says to Bobby, want something, want something. She's begging him to look inward at the most neglected and malnourished parts of himself. And when he does, he nearly collapses in the face of emotions he's kept buried for years. It's terrifying, but there's no going back now for the character. Being Alive is one of those songs I know I could never sing, a fact that leaves me feeling more than a little relieved. The idea of playing Bobby gets me excited as hell, but actually going through with it, singing Being Alive, my poor throat could not handle the stress. Well, you don't sing with your throat, Jonathan. I know. And I don't want to play anything from the finale track. I just want to point out that (laughs) the best part of the finale track is Elaine Stritch punching the word telephone in the phrase telephone calls. Late nights, quick fights, party games, ding talks, long walks, telephone calls. She she just punches it. She goes louder than anyone else in in the cast. It's just Telephone calls! That's how she delivers it. It is sublime. Now, we are still technically in the score deconstruction part of this week's episode, but I want to offer a handy reference guide for people who may be a fan of company, but still listen to certain songs and and wonder, what are they talking about? What the fuck are they referencing? What is the meaning of this? What is the meaning behind some of these lyrics?
topics? Well, I'm going to hopefully provide some answers to you that you did not have before. Now, admittedly, I am cribbing heavily from various Wikipedia pages when it comes to most of these explanations, so uh, don't bot me on the nose. Let's begin with this lyric. Have I got a girl for you, boy? Who, boy? Dumb. And with a weakness for Sazerac slings. This is from the song Have I Got a Girl for You. Now, I thought they were talking about sex swings, but the Sazerac is a local New Orleans variation of a cognac or whiskey cocktail. It is named for the Sazerac brand of cognac brandy that served as its original main ingredient. Now you know. Let's go on to this lyric. Look, you know I adore you all, but why watch me die like Eliza on the ice? This is from Not Getting Married Today. This would appear to be a nod to Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, in which a character named Eliza escapes slavery by crossing a frozen lake. But she does not actually die, which leads me to think that this solution I found online is not actually correct or right. That is the one that stands the greatest chance of being flat out wrong, but I offer it to you anyway. Our next entry in this handy-dandy reference guide is not a lyric. It is actually a line from the book. Here is that line. You know what comes to mind when I see him? The Seagram's Building. Isn't that funny? The Seagram Building is a Manhattan skyscraper located at 375 Park Avenue that was completed in 1958. It cost $41 million to construct, making it the most expensive skyscraper of all time. Architect Mize van der Rohe sought to make the building's internal materials its chief external feature, rather than trying to conceal them with a more traditionally decorative facade. So the building's heart is on its sleeve, in a sense. It's open and honest about itself, but it's also not the most approachable or inviting design. It's cool, but it's not a place anyone would want to call home. And I believe this is what Sondheim's going for in comparing the building to Bobby. I say Sondheim, that's, I, I have to assume, an idea uh, bred by George Firth. So I'm just going to try and give credit where it's due. Here's another lyric for you, quote, And here's to the girls who play smart, aren't they a gas, rushing to their classes in optical art, wishing it would pass. Quote, this is from the ladies who lunch. Optical art, otherwise known as op art, is a style of visual art that uses optical illusions. Op art works are abstract and give the viewer the impression of movement and hidden images. Here's another lyric for you. Quote, this is also from the ladies who lunch. Quote, another long exhausting day, another thousand dollars, a matinee, a pinter play. This is playwright Harold Pinter, of course, but which of his plays would Joanne have been referencing? Oh, I wanted to look into it. My guess, The Homecoming, which opened on Broadway in 1967 and closed after 324 performances. Now, long before 1970, of course, to be sure, but I can see it sticking in Joanne's craw as a reference. And then finishing out that lyric we just cited from The Ladies Who Lunch, the last part of that is, perhaps a piece of Mahler's. Okay? Now, Gustav Mahler was a composer who lived from 1860 through 1911. I always thought Joanne was talking about a piece of cake. As in cake you would find at a high-end bakery known as Mahler's. Hello, welcome to Mahler's. I'm George Mahler. You look hungry. Have a piece of banana bread stuffed with Cocoa Puffs. 
One more for the road. In the book scene leading up to The Ladies Who Lunch, Joanne clocks the 1948 film The Red Shoes while mocking her husband. Take off the red shoes, Larry! Oh my god, I realized we have so much more to talk about, and this episode truly is going to be one of our longest, and I am not looking forward to editing it, and I just want to put that out there. A little bit of a little bit of brutal honesty from the musical man, because I have capsule reviews and general musings regarding all of the other cast albums I listened to. Let's talk about the 1995 Broadway revival cast album. This is a thoroughly, one might say, ferociously forgettable album. True, this revival changed the lyric, husband joined to wife from another hundred people, to husband yoked to wife, and I appreciate that. Much funnier, but beyond that, the opening number sounds like it's being sung in a chilly airport terminal. A number of tracks, and not with a triumphant orchestral button. Bobby is my hobby and I'm giving it up. Bam! But with a limp throwaway note. Bobby is my hobby and I'm giving it up. Dump. The devil's in the details, and these details are dire. When you listen to five cast albums in a single day, you inevitably latch onto and obsess over how different actors deliver certain lines. For example, that line, you know what comes to my mind every time I see him? The Seagram's building, isn't that funny? Here's how it's delivered on this album. You know what comes to mind every time I see him? The Seagram's building, isn't that funny? Sir, please, just put the gun down. We're all just trying to deposit our checks and get home, okay? If you've ever wondered what company would sound like filtered through the sitcom lens of I love you, you're perfect, now change, the 95 Broadway album might prove to be your speed. Everyone else should avoid it. Okay, so moving on to the 1995 London Revival cast album slash Don Mayer Warehouse production, which I watched on YouTube. I've said that six times now. This production, which as a reminder was directed by Sam Mendes and is available in full on YouTube. Oh my god, <laughs> I just said it again. It has a hell of a lot more personality than its sister revival, to a point where I would describe it as camp, company by way of drag. The accents are all over the place, everyone is swinging from the rafters emotionally. It's a wild experience all around. The clip we played earlier, in which Mendez interviews Sondheim, makes it clear how the events of the show take place entirely within Bobby's mind, which goes a long way toward explaining the revival's gnarly, sweaty tone. The best scene sequence from this production is Side by Side by Side slash What Would We Do Without You, for which Bobby snorts cocaine on stage before putting on a dance recital. It's a brilliant showcase for Adrian Lester, who goes out of his way to show Bobby as a broken and sorrowful man. Lester utilizes a fragile tenor that casts Bobby in a uniquely gentle feminine light, and this choice quickly grew on me. Lester does have trouble maintaining the American accent, but again, everyone sort of has this problem. No one is allowed to steal the cocaine idea from Sam Mendes, by the way. We really have to let that stand on its own. It's too good to photocopy. Being alive makes room for a heavy dose of sax, and that really has proven to be my Achilles heel sax. It's like butter. You can never have enough sax. The overall arrangement for being alive is quite good, swelling and shining to such a degree that it effectively cleanses the show of all the cynicism that came before it. And when Bobby blows out his 
birthday candles in the show's final moment. It got me choked up a bit, I must admit. I must admit! Give me that pill! I want that pill! I didn't even talk about that moment in my plot summary, but yes, the uh, the pernicious birthday candles that he could not blow out at the top of the show do effectively get blown out at the end because Bobby has found closure and he's walking through a, a new door. He's going into a new chapter. Blah, blah, blah. Cliches upon cliches. One more note regarding the full performance I watched on YouTube. Ever heard of it? Sheila Gish is a terrific Joanne, and her delivery of the following line is spot on. Here's that line. My first husband, eh, he was so difficult to remember. But I wonder if there's a laugh to be found by putting a small pause between difficult and the phrase to remember. A tiny one, very tiny pause. Here's how I'm thinking that would sound. Yes, I'm giving a line reading as the director. My first husband, eh, he was so difficult to remember. Is that something? Is it worth trying? Is it too spot on? Is it too on the nose? I don't know. We'll talk about it. We'll try it out. Uh, but I already gave you the line reading, so you know how it should sound. The 2006 Broadway revival cast album. Okay, this is easily the album I'm most familiar with, as it dropped when I was in college, and no one would get enough. No one could get enough, I should say, of the DVD release. Everyone was quite proud of how this production had its tryout at Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, where basically in Cincinnati, said all of the college students who went to college in Kentucky. I'll plant a flag. There it is. <laughs> I'll plant a flag in the ground and declare Raul Esparza as the sexiest Bobby in the history of company. The value of his bluster rises and falls for me over the course of this performance. I love when he roars company at the end of the opening number, for example, but his delivery of mock me with praise is downright inexplicable. Mock me with praise. It's just, it's re-fucking-diculous. It's mock level. But when it comes to sexy times, I would I would let Raul, I would let his Bobby put me on my back any time of the day. Should we put Raul Esparza in the Cream Pie Cutie Club? He's in. Done. He's in. Note to self, get a photo of Raul Esparza, put it on Twitter. That's how it works, baby. You're in, Raul. I do not want Neil Patrick Harris's Bobby coming anywhere near me or my back. He'd probably try to seduce me with a magic trick, some cup and ball routine bullshit. No thanks. I waffle back and forth on this production's central gimmick, which sees the cast acting as their own orchestra. Now, director John Doyle loved that shit for a hot minute, and boy, oh boy, did it get old for me fast. I didn't... By the time he did Sweeney Todd in this style, I was over it. Some of the choices in this revival are cute in how they relate to the actors playing these instruments. Some of the choices are cute, and a few proved to be fairly impactful. For example, replacing do-do-do-do-do with horn hoots. That's totally cute. I'm for it. It's fun. It's harmless. Doubling down on the chamber quality of sorry, grateful. Give it to me. Okay, baby. Give it, give it. Give it to me, baby. Uh, sure. But when push comes to shove, I don't need any of this nonsense. It seems very busy. It seems like a lot of fucking work for very little overall effect. It's very show-offy. It's not really thematic. It's just, it's, it's driven by ego is what it is. And I'm never as impressed with it as everyone on stage seems to be. I learned to play the tuba. Okay, who cares? But Jonathan, everyone has an instrument except Bobby. Much like everyone has a partner except Bobby. No, I, I, I get it. And at the end of the show, Bobby finally pairs with an instrument. The piano, huh? 
Believe me, I understand the symbolism. If you experience a groundswell of emotion in that moment, cool, I would never seek to rob you of that. I really do mean that. But it doesn't pluck at any of my heartstrings, sad to say. And you know what? Don't take jobs away from musicians. That's what I say. Making actors do double the work seems more like a way of saving a buck than realizing a vital and necessary artistic vision. Are you paying the actors double? Are you paying them the actor rate and the musician rate? I highly doubt it. Heather Laws is beating the pants off of everyone in the April department. She's easily my favorite iteration of that character. The way she delivers the line, he's my best friend. Second best! kills me. I, I would direct that moment to ensure literally no one is giving April side-eye before she screams second best. Paul isn't jealous and none of their friends think she's being weird. April merely assumes fire is about to rain down on her head at any moment. Is April my favorite character? Yes, by far. I love how George Firth gives her both of those great lines. You have to want to marry somebody, not somebody, and then later on want something, want something. I would contest that she and Joanne see Bobby more clearly than anyone. Actually, I would, I would put Kathy in that group as well while we're talking about it. Can we also talk about the scene between Bobby and Kathy in the park, speaking of Kathy? Because the way Chrissy Whitehead says, enjoy your party on the DVD breaks off a tiny piece of my soul. She drifts off on a gust of wind on that party. <laughs> enjoy your party. She just flies away. Bobby, catch her. Why did I throw away that DVD? <laughs> they cost so much now. You cannot get this shit digitally. Why? And then finally, I want to talk about the 2018 London Revival cast album. This is a big one. This is a big one. Okay, so before we go into this revival, let me put this out there. I'm a man. I identify as a man who does, and I do a lot of talking, and a lot of that talk comes right out of my ass. So if any of this, any, if any of what I'm about to say comes off as tone deaf, please, I, I encourage you to set me straight. Uh, set me right. <laughs> I'm gay. To clarify, I would like to hear from the women who listen to this podcast. The male musical minions can take a back seat on this one. This is the revival that flips Bobby's gender. So Bobby, B-O-B-B-Y, becomes B-O-B-B-I-E, and a number of other characters have swapped genders as well. Amy is Jamie, April is Andy, Marta is PJ, and Kathy is Theo. And for the life of me, I could never figure out if this revival viewed those flips as a big deal, intention was not coming through, a sense of intellectual curiosity was not coming through, is placing a woman at the center of company a big deal? To me, yes, it's a big deal. It's a check the revival eagerly writes, one that promises new insights on a piece that, at the time, was nearly 50 years old, but the check is never cashed. Why? Because the revival has no idea what to do with Bobby. I'm all for bringing my own eyes and ears to a piece of theater and crafting my personal take on it. I do it every week. But I like to feel as if I'm in conversation with theater, not merely staring it down until something hopefully clicks inside me. Theater is not a portrait of fruit. For a revival that's meant to be about a woman, there sure are a lot of men squawking throughout this thing. Sorry Grateful is still a number for the guys, and that threw me for a loop. Doesn't that seem like a prime opportunity for a gender flip? We should have Bobby talk to the married women in her life. It would totally shed new light on the song. No one said that? No one said that? Big missed opportunity. Huge! 
So sorry, Grateful is still reserved for the dudes. Fine. But consider how in this revival, You Could Drive a Person Crazy features a male trio. Getting Married Today is about a man. Poor Baby is sung by men. It never ends. Poor Baby should have never been about men talking down to Bobby. I mean, I don't think anyone understood how condescending and creepy that choice would seem. Speaking of creepy, why has TikTok been completely rewritten? And why does it sound as if Bobby is being stalked by chuds? It's not like I was expecting company by way of the Heidi Chronicles, for God's sake. I don't need a new book that deconstructs every angle on what it means to be a woman in 2018. But you can't change the wallpaper in a house and pat yourself on the back for starting a minor revolution in architecture. It's the same home as you've never seen it before. It really isn't. Here are a few examples of the trivial changes they made, the wallpaper changes. The lyric, and Jesus Christ, is it fun, has become, and oh my God, is it fun. Why? Someone screams, you feminist during You Could Drive a Person Crazy. No one talks like that. They could have been honest about how men actually talk to and about women, but instead, we got someone screaming, you feminist. It's lame. It is so lame. Awful, awful joke. The lyric, look, I'll call you in the morning is now, look, I'll text you in the morning because it's 2018. This revival is set in modern day, mistake. And in the modern day, we we can text each other now. Smartphones, am I right, everybody? If your concept boils down to smartphones, am I right, everybody? You're not putting in the work. Husband joined to wife is now boy unites with boy which isn't at all infantilizing. My happily soon-to-be wife, my lover, my partner, my life. Because it's Paul and Jamie now, not Paul and Amy, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, if you know what I mean. And then that line, that, that Seagram's building line, the Seagram's building, isn't that funny? That is now the Chrysler building. Isn't that weird? Why Chrysler? Why weird? What was wrong with funny? What was wrong with Seagram building? No one says, isn't that funny in 2018. They all say weird. No, they don't. She's tall enough to be your mother, Goliath. They got rid of that. It's gone, stricken from the record. They don't even bother replacing it with another joke of equal value. Someone merely says he's young enough to be your son. Come on already, he's tall enough to be your father. That's still funny, it's right there. And then finally, this other wallpaper change that I must cite, this episode is gonna be so long. Is this gonna be our first two hour episode? Maybe, <laughs> cross pause. In The Ladies Who Lunch, instead of singing Clutching a Copy of Life, Joanne sings Clutching a Copy of Time. Presumably because life is no longer in circulation. I get it. But Joanne is also referring to a pinter play and a piece of Mahler's. Why are those references considered perennial? Obviously, I'm not a fan of these changes, these gestures toward evolution, these flourishes that would die to pass as considered transformation. But I don't mean to be an asshole about it. I really don't. I wish I was excited by the final results of this genuinely intriguing idea. I'm not the kind of person who sticks his thumb up his ass and pouts whenever a lady Ghostbuster shows up or whatever the hell. And if I were to see Marianne Elliott's production, I'm sure there's a strong chance my assessment would be rendered totally moot. Hearing a musical isn't the same as seeing it on its feet, after all. I know that to be true. 
And not every moment of this album rang hollow, to be clear. Rosalie Craig's rendition of Someone is Waiting evokes a fear many women experience, the sense that maybe it's too late for them to find someone and actually start their life. The male version of this character would never face the sort of societal pressures that are applied to women, and I appreciated this reminder. Get me thinking about this stuff. I'm here to be engaged, okay? But then you have the moment where Bobby proposes to Jamie, they do that moment line for line. It's the exact same moment, okay? Jamie's about to get married to Paul, the love of his life, and Jamie panics and breaks it off seemingly, and that's when Bobby steps in, and she says, marry me. Marry me and everyone else will leave us alone. That's legitimately insane. Everyone will leave you alone. Would they, Bobby? Why would they leave you alone? They would never be able to stop talking about it. If I attended a wedding where that happened, I would talk about it every day for the rest of my fucking life. Remember when Jamie left Paul at the altar and married Bobby? I have never stopped thinking about that. I wake up and I go to sleep thinking about that. Two more gripes and I will shut up about this particular revival. I cannot deal with this revival's trauma cube of a set. It reminds me of American Psycho, and for all I know, the damn thing is alive. It hums with a with a sentience that really scares me. The Into Nightclub track sucks. fucking bad, am I right? Shit like techno music and smartphones, those things don't make your show modern. They make audiences question why they come to the theater in the first place. No one attends a Shakespeare play hoping to see Othello do poppers at Scarlet, okay? No one goes to see a doll's house hoping Nora will play Bejeweled on her iPad. You can trust the material or you can stay home. Those are your options. I have spoken. If you can believe it, we are still in the score deconstruction because I want to rank all of the performances of the Ladies Who Lunch that I listened to this week. So these are the five performances from the five respective cast albums that I listened to. Now, I'm not going to be playing clips because here's the thing. When I did this for uh, Rose's turn, when I did this for Rose's turn in our Gypsy episode, GarageBand really freaked out on me. When you keep dropping in tracks that all have the same name, GarageBand just fucks up and everything just gets out of order and everything shifts around. It's a real pain in the ass. So I'm just going to give you my breakdown, starting with number one. Of course, Elaine Stritch, 1970 OBC, baby. The template against which all others must be measured. I often wonder how Joanne, as crafted by other actors, could appeal to Bobby or her husband's, but Elaine cracked that code right from the beginning. Her Joanne will bust your balls, there's no doubt about it, but it wouldn't be a party without her, without this version of Joanne. I would go to the mat for Elaine's Joanne, I would visit her at a retirement community, and then I I would hold her hand as she passed away in a hospital bed. Elaine's Joanne is ride or die for me. It shouldn't come as a surprise. 
Coming in at number two, we have Sheila Gish from the 1995 London cast. Sheila is serving up Joanne by way of Kathleen Turner, and it's bone-rattling and magnificent. She's spitting hot gravel. She's a tank. Elaine is the only one who could wrench this part away from her in a wrestling match, but Christ, would that be a throwdown for the ages. Coming in at number three, Barbara Walsh of 2006 Broadway. Her take on Joanne is one part Greta Garbo, I want to be alone, one part Poison Ivy by way of Uma Thurman. She employs the coiled physicality of a panther and the voice of an icy Disney villain. We stan, and I dig the mournful piano and quivering string, which serves as her backing throughout The Ladies Who Lunch. Like I said, some of John Doyle's instrumental choices appeal to me, my withered, my withered and cranky sensibility, but... I could still, I could definitely still leave it all behind. Let's just not worry about that. Coming in at number four, Patty Lapone, 2018, London. Happy to report this isn't a case of Patty mugging her way through another iconic role, see our Gypsy episode. She seems quite at home and is allowing the song to lead, which results in a thoroughly satisfying performance. There's no fuss here. There's no muss here. She's just doing the work, and I appreciate it. And then, unfortunately, so all of those performances are are all shades of good. Good, great, really strong performances, four through one. But number five, oh boy, Deborah Monk from the 1995 Broadway revival album. She screams like she is going to gut the hostess with a butcher's knife. It's a jarring, needy bit of theatricality that interrupts an otherwise ho-hum characterization. Did you hear me scream? We all heard you scream, Deborah. Okay. <laughs> uh, by the way, we are going to get more on those screams, the scream that comes right after a Another vodka stinger. Ah, we're going to be hearing, we're going to be talking about that more in a second. <laughs> but first, we have a new $10 a month patron. It's true. It's Liz, baby. Hello, Liz. Liz deserves a musical shout out and Liz is going to get it now. Take it away, musical shout out. why you should be complaining. You don't need Liz. You got me, your old pal, Starlight. Oh, I know, and I love you, Starlight. Well, I wouldn't go that far. But if Liz was here, wow, that would be great. I just know that Liz would take me to the places I have never been. Give me money monthly to keep my spirits up. Though they may be unseen, dedication's not a thing that anyone can make up. American Express, Bitcoin or check, cash or coin, we don't care. 
to impress our patrons we bless we don't want her to go rusty your blind look in your mind liz is there yes it's true the american express is proof of logic now race rusty race for is and librarians all around the world so you're pro is now my caboose is covered in wet coal and I can barely put a sentence together. But forget about me. Go win that race, Rusty. Ah, sure thing, Starlight. Goodbye. Goodbye, Rusty. Goodbye. Oh, you could have told him, Starlight. You could have told him he was your son. You could have told him everything, but you let the booze get in the way, didn't you? You stupid coward, you stupid old drunk locomotive motherfucker. Oh, look at that, five o'clock. Time for a martini. Choo, choo. Final thoughts regarding company. This has proven to be one of our haftiest episodes to date, so I will simply say this. Company, good. Company have ha-ha. Company have boo-hoo-hoo. Company have it all. And in 1971, Company took it home, baby. The big prize, the Tony Award for Best Musical. The other shows nominated for Best Musical that season, The Me Nobody Knows and The Rothschilds. The Rothschilds? I hope I said it, <laughs> I hope I said that right. We'll talk about it one day. Get the fuck out of here with these other shows. I hope you like Dust, The Me Nobody Knows. Hope you like Dust, The Rothschilds, because Company's Dust is on the menu. Let's rank the show against all all of the other musicals we've talked about here on the podcast. I'm going to put Company at number nine on our list, right between Man of La Mancha at number eight and You're in Town at number ten. Of course, as always, I forget to mention this sometimes, but if you want to see how all of the shows are ranked, there is a very easy reference guide that you can find by going to our Twitter profile, at MusicalManPod. Click on the pinned tweet, go to the second tab. we got that whole ranking right there for you, baby, baby, yeah! Show-related ephemera. All right, we have a lot of show-related ephemera that we got to go through today and it's all really good. It's I really love all this stuff. So we're going to hear a clip from Taxi Season 2 Episode 21. The name of that episode, Alex Jumps Out of an Airplane. In this clip, the character of Alex from Taxi sits at a piano and plays Being Alive and I enjoy how the character cheats on the last utterance of that phrase, Being Alive. You're going to hear it now. Take it away. Somehow you're talking. I mean, what's going on with you? I don't know, but ever since that jump on Saturday, I... I understand what Hemingway was talking about. Every man has fears, but those who face their fears with dignity have courage as well. For instance, that piano. You're gonna ski off that piano? (laughs) Oh, you see, I, um, well, I, I know how to play the piano a little bit, you see, but I've always been afraid of calling attention to myself, you know? Alex, what are you doing? I don't know. I'll do a little, uh, being alive. Mm Somebody hold me too close 
Somebody hurt me too deep Somebody sit in my chair And ruin my sleep And make me aware Of being alive Being alive Somebody need me too much Somebody know me too well Somebody pull me up short And put me through hell And give me support For being alive Being alive Being alive Being alive I love that. It's really great. Chris is a huge fan of that show, so I wanted to make sure that we included that. It's very rare when the musical theater world and that of Taxi coincides, overlaps, so you gotta put that in there. Our next bit of ephemera is Stephen Sondheim at London's Guildhall School of Music and Drama, and he is coaching a trio of students through a performance of the song Not Getting Married. Let's get some color into the word dead there. Dead, dead. High, oh, please sinks down and feels dead. I mean, let's put, push it in, push it in. But she's hearing you in her head, and what you're saying is, darling, it's worse than you think it's going to be. <laughs> Much worse than you think it's going to be, okay? So you're emphasizing her insanity, so really push it at her, really push it at her. Very pure, but push it at her. Once more, do your, do your little, little bit. Second, no. Now, if you'll take a pause before the word tragedy, it'll help take, take a little catch breath before the word tragedy so that it will, it will uh, uh, contrast with the word pinnacle, which is the, in, the, in the first section. Bless this day, tragedy of life, as opposed to bless this day, tragedy. Give, give a, so, you, so you isolate the word a little bit, okay? Once more. interested to confirm when this workshop took place. There are other videos, I believe, from this very same session. He's always in this very charming, very rumpled brown suit jacket. But I don't know in what year this took place, so I would be very interested if anyone happens to have that information. I've always enjoyed these clips and the cerulean backdrop. I think that's where I got my cyclorama idea for staging company in general. But it's all very homey to me, and you get this nice sense of like this college atmosphere, like this nervous energy, but there's not a lot of anxiety, and the kids are really talented, and it's just so cool to see them interacting with someone who they very obviously admire and consider to be an icon of the world in which they want to enter into. It's it's very inspiring. Uh, the idea of Sondheim sitting 10 feet away as I sang his material, well, uh, me, I would cry. I would have a breakdown, but these kids are stronger than I was, slash am, and I admire them. This third bit of ephemera that I'm going to play, this is a 
Broadway Dreams Foundation Los Angeles Summer Intensive performance from 2017. What a fucking mouthful. Let's play that for you now. So here's to the girls who just watch, aren't they the best? When they're depressed, it's a bottle of pop plus a little text. <laughs> Another chance to disapprove. Another brilliant singer. Another reason not to move. Another fruit punch stinger. Ah! I'll drink to that. So here's to the girls who on the go, everybody tries. Look into their eyes and you'll see what they know. Everybody does. A toast to the invisible bunch. The dinosaur surviving the crunch. Let's hear it for the ladies who lunch. Everybody run. So as you may have been able to tell, if you haven't seen this online, these are very little children, little tiny children, little girls singing The Ladies Who Lunch, and everybody finds it to be so fucking funny. The girls are drinking from juice boxes. Oh, those are our children. How funny. Juice, juice boxes. This is great. And you may have noticed a few lyric changes. When they get depressed, it's a bottle of pop plus a little text. Uh-huh. This is delivered, that line, that newly changed line, is delivered as the young performer is taking a selfie. So, do you not know what texting is? Because texting is not the same as uh, taking a selfie, okay? The lyric, another reason not to move, another vodka stinger becomes another fruit punch stinger. <laughs> and surprisingly, no one thought to change the lyric, everybody dies to everybody cries, why? Why did no one think to make that change? Children are allowed to face their mortality, but we can't have them singing about scotch and vodka, I suppose. It wouldn't be right. Death, yes. Alcohol, no. What was the goal here in staging this number with children? To somehow capture the magic of Anna Kendrick's performance from camp? Ugh. And finally, let's get a clip of Dinah Shore and Jane Russell performing The Ladies Who Lunch from a 1979 episode of the show Dinah. Stephen Sondheim wrote this song uh, about them for his Broadway production of Company. Here's to the ladies who lunch, everybody laugh, lounging in their captains and planning a brunch on their own behalf. Off to the gym. Then to a fitting, claiming they're fat And looking grim, cause they've been sitting Choosing a hat Does anyone still wear a hat? Ask Bill, I think they're in today I'll drink to that Smart, aren't they a gas? Rushing to their classes in optical art, wishing it would pass. Another long, exhausting day, another thousand dollars, a matinee 
white, aren't they too much? Keeping house and clutching a copy of life just to keep in touch. To paint a picture for those who don't wind up catching the full performance on YouTube, we're sponsored by YouTube. Dinah and Jane, all right? Okay, so they're seated at a bistro table, which has been obscured by an enormous bubblegum tablecloth. A vase containing carnations, one red, one white, has been placed upon the bistro table. As they perform, Dinah and Jane take judicious sips of Catholic wine. They are framed by a pair of artificial araca palms, which appear to be moments away from tipping over in their baskets, and a shimmering shower curtain casts a distinct, beautiful, briny sea effect over the whole affair. Jane is sporting a pink number that makes her look like a cabaret singer at a Grandy's restaurant, while Dinah is dressed for a guest appearance on Battlestar Galactica. I don't mean to be cruel, but it would appear someone has taken a pair of scrapbook scissors to the neckline of Jane Russell's dress. She cannot stop clearing her throat. Dinah keeps leaping a mile ahead of the band, as you would have heard, and they keep looking at each other as if this is all one big lucid dream. It's important to note that at the top of this episode of Dinah, it's established how everyone in the audience... (laughs) The entire audience is made up of young girls in country western attire. This clip was beamed in straight from Pluto. The best part of this exchange between Jane Russell and Dinah Shore. Jane says, does anyone still wear a hat? She's copying Elaine Stritch's staggered delivery of that question, which I, that's annoying in and of itself. Stop, just stop copying that. But when she says that, does anyone still wear a hat? Dinah says, Ask Bill, I think they're in today. I I can't get over that. I, I, I can't get over that. It's so crazy. I swear to God. The arrangement for this number, by the way, is Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood at a Cocktail Lounge. It is... Oh boy, you gotta watch it. Go, go online, find the whole thing, watch it. And then last but not least, I told you we were gonna be talking about that scream after the phrase, another vodka stinger. Ah, well, I built out a nearly two and a half minute scream montage that takes into account all sorts of performances of the ladies who lunch. So here's the breakdown for this montage. We're gonna start with Elaine Stritch, and then we're gonna follow her with Deborah Monk, Sheila Gish, Barbara Walsh, Patty Lapone. We've we've talked about all these lovely performers, but then we're going to move into some performers we haven't talked about. Barbara Streisand from the 1985 album, The Broadway Album. Anna Kendrick from the 2003 film Camp. Okay, so we're citing her, we're throwing her in there. Then we're going to hear Alan Cumming from his 2016 album. Alan Cumming sings sappy songs live at the Cafe Carlisle. We'll follow that up with Carol Burnett from the 1993 Long Beach Civic Light Opera production of Company. Blossom Deary from her 2005 album Blossom's Planet, Edie Gourmet from a 1964 album. This is very strange to me. This is apparently an album from 1964, long before comedy would have premiered on Broadway, but she is singing The Ladies Who Lunch, and the name of that album is Edie Gourmet Sings the Great Songs from the Sound of Music and Other Broadway Hits. Inhale. (gasps) 
Cleo Lane will follow Edie Gourmet. This is from her 1988 album, Cleo Sings Sondheim. And then we're going to have Emily Skinner from the 2017 original Broadway cast of The Prince of Broadway, which was a Hal Prince review. We'll hear her rendition of The Scream, and then we're going to close out with Jinx Monsoon from the 2013 album, The Inevitable Album. Okay, without further ado, I just wanted to give you the context of who you're going to hear screaming throughout this whole thing. (laughs) Let's take it away with that montage. Another vodka stinger! I'll drink to that. Another vodka stinger! I'll drink to that. Another vodka stinger! Another reason not to move. Another vodka stinger. Drink to that. Another vodka stinger. Ah! I'll drink to that. Another vodka stinger. Screaming, so much screaming. Now, this would normally be the point where we take a ride on the musical carousel and determine which show we'll discuss next. But our latest patron, Liz, has earned the right to stop the musical carousel on whatever show they like. And Liz chose a 1998 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 772 performances. It is none other than Frank Wildhorn's The Scarlet Pimpernel. Oh, I'm such a fan of that goofy, cheesy show. Now, this episode will drop Wednesday. May 6th, as I am taking one week off. This would have been, so this vacation that I'm sort of giving myself was meant to be a time where Chris and I went to my college and saw their production of Mamma Mia. That was a big component of my Patreon schedule for 2020, but that production has been moved to 2021. So that will eventually happen. We will get to take that trip and I'll cover it on Patreon. But for now, this is just a week that I get to myself, which is really nice because I'm going to tell you right now, after editing this motherfucker, this monster of an episode, I'm going to need some R&R, right? 
Right. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. Uh, Big announcement regarding the Patreon. 100% of our May, June, and July 2020 payouts, all of the money that we generate through those three months will go directly to the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. So please consider today becoming a one, three, five, or $10 a month donor. If you donate $1 a month or more, you get Monday early access to all of our main feed episodes. So if you're given at least a dollar, you're hearing this two days before everybody else. You also get weekly verbal shout-outs. Let's do that now. Thank you so much for your generosity. Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marquez, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. How you love to see that list of names grow slowly over time. Oh, you love to see it. But you also get bonus episodes. If you give a dollar a month, you're getting all this stuff. Plus bonus episodes covering the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, and a review of the musical production of Emma that ran recently in Chicago. We have other bonus episodes on, you know, coming down the pike, I will say that. Uh, it will probably be some time before you hear another one of those, but who knows, maybe I'll come up with a new idea that I'll be able to drop, that I will be able to drop onto your lap sooner rather than later, I hope so. Uh, here's the thing, you that's not the end of the $1 a month uh, incentive list. No, not at all. You also get access to Radio Boy. That's our current ongoing weekly series for which I take a closer look at myself and the songs that make me feel more like myself. Songs outside of the canon of musical theater, I should say. Now, if you give $3 a month or more, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. We got one of those this week for Liz. And you also get season one, 10 episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast. Now, if you bump up to the $5 a month tier, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. Liz chose the Scarlet Pimpernel. What would you choose? Think about it. Consider giving $5 a month and you will be able to stop the musical carousel. Yes. You also get access to season one, 12 episodes of All I Ask of You, the advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. That is a show dedicated to the problems, the concerns, the troubles of the villains of the world of musical theater. Hmm, maybe not so villainous, maybe more villainous than we ever imagined in the first place. Here's the thing. We're going to be offering a free episode of All I Ask of You via the main feed next week. That is going to drop on April 29th. So don't worry. You will have content to listen to, my friends, in the main feed. And it's going to be a nice taste and amuse bouche of that full 12-episode season. So, and you also get access to our Broadway in Chicago review series. I have reviewed Oslo, Mean Girls, Once on this Island, and Summer. And I hope I cross pause that Broadway in Chicago season will start up again. We have to take our time. We have to be safe. We have to be reasonable in these situations and patient. But eventually that Broadway in Chicago review series will kick up again, I assure you. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus season one, 12 episodes of The Snub Club. Huh? It is a show dedicated to musicals, Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. And I don't believe I've said this, but we are going to be announcing a new $10 a month series at the end of May 2020. So be on the lookout around that time for an announcement. $10 a month donors, don't think I've forgotten about you. There's a brand new series coming to you. We're going to announce it in May and then we're going to start it up in June, baby. June, that's right. Normally this would be the point where I talk about where all the money goes toward, but as I already mentioned, our May, June, and July payouts are going to go directly 100% to the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. I will be providing receipts for the sake of transparency on Twitter. I just feel that that 
is something that we need to do. That is just something that needs to be done. A lot of podcasts are going in that direction right now. And the money is needed elsewhere. That is where I will say, this is normally where I would talk about renting movies, buying cast recordings. But at the end of the day, I'm fine. And a lot of people are not. A lot of people are in very dire situations. And we need to be uh, donating where we can and helping where we can. So that's the plan for the next three months. If you're listening to the show through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment. Take a moment to write a five-star review via Apple Podcasts. I love reading those reviews. You have no idea how every single piece of positive feedback keeps me going, keeps the fuel in the gas tank. Let me tell you, this is going to take a lot of work. This is going to be our longest episode to date. I'm calling it right now. I called it at the beginning of the fucking episode, but it definitely is true now. The very least that you can do. This is a free thing that you can do. Get online, get on the internet, and give me a five-star review via Apple Podcasts. A lot of work goes into this show, and we like to see that people are enjoying themselves. If you follow us on Twitter, that's at MusicalManPod. Please start retweeting posts regarding new episodes. Really, you have to help us out here. You gotta help spread the word for the show. We don't pay for advertising. You know, we have a very limited window here, but we want to widen that window as much as humanly possible. And if you have any questions, if you have any suggestions, feedback, send me an email at MusicalManPod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny. I'm not with them. We're not in the studio. They're not in the booth. I didn't make that mistake this time around. Patty, Benny, I know you're listening. Thank you so much for those postcards. Those really were a breath of fucking fresh air. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous outro and intro music. And that's the doorbell. That's the doorbell. Oh, you know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night.